So do you guys remember when there wasn't a new model of something every year? Right, like I remember when, uh, back in the day, uh, there was this, we, our first TV, or the first TV I remember, I don't even remember when we got it, because it, I think, predated my birth. I'm not sure, <laughs> I can't remember exactly, because I was young, but uh, we just had this TV for the longest time from before I can remember, so, you know, when I was born or whatever, and it was this huge thing, you know, it was one of those old school, big TVs that started breaking down after a while, the screen would actually, it would turn green for some reason. I don't know what that was all about. But then we'd have to just like punch it. So we would just punch it, you know, in the, in the screen. And then it would kind of, it would correct itself, right? Or, or I don't know, I guess we're correcting it by hitting it. But um, we had this TV for like, before I was born until like I was, I think like 15 or something. That's the first time we got a, we got a new TV. So we had this TV for like at least 15 years. And back then, you didn't really know when anything was made, right? Like we never, I think it was a Zenith. I don't even remember exactly. Zenith or Magnolia, something like that. And um, we had this TV for the longest time, and I would have never known. You know, nobody would have known. My dad wouldn't have known. Like what model TV is that? Like what year TV is that? Right? That wasn't a thing back then, right? You didn't say, oh, what, what year or even, or, you know, in my childhood in like the 90s. The 80s or 90s. It's like, oh, what, what year Walkman is that? It's like, we never said that. You know, what year, what model, like, VCR is that? We never did that. That wasn't a thing. But now, there's a new model of everything, like, every year. Right? Even, I mean, of course, like, cars and phones. And when they release these things, there are even events Right, like Apple does an event every year. Google does an event every year. Samsung does an event every year for every new product. But not just that. Like I was shopping for a, a keyboard recently, a mechanical keyboard, because I, I, I needed a key. I'm doing so much like work from home, and um, I, just, I just wanted to type, you know, a little bit more comfortable and, and faster. And um, so I'm looking for a keyboard, and... Even when I'm shopping for these keyboards, it's like, well, there's like the 19 model, there's the 18, 2018 model, and then there's a the 2019 model, and then there's a the 2020 model. And I'm like, do we really need, is there enough innovation in keyboards that we need a new one every single year for fridges, for, for washer dryers, for coffee makers, for like Lego sets, <laughs> for toys? Like back in the day, I had eight toys when I was growing up. Literally, I had five G.I. Joes, one Ninja Turtle, this one cool Robotech toy that they just don't make toys like that anymore. That thing was awesome. And, um, and a Transformer. This was literally, this was my crew of eight toys that I had growing up all the way until I stopped playing with toys. And when they would break, I would tape them back together. I would glue them. I had an entire surgical toy process to put them back together to preserve them. And now, if you miss a toy in, like, the three months that it's out, you can't get it anymore because they make new ones. That's how crazy our world is with the life cycles of things. We're constantly searching for new. It's now how we're wired. Novelty keeps us interested, and we expect it. 
Right? Every year you expect to see the new phone, the new car, you know, the new thing. You want to see the new features. And when it comes out, whether you get it or not, you want it, right? Because it, it does things that your phone doesn't do, right? It has things that your car doesn't have. It answers itself. It drives itself. You know, it's a vacuum that cleans by itself, right? That's, we see it and we want it. Now, it's not, and it's not wrong, you know, to have things or to buy things. But what we should recognize is that it can become problematic when it creates in this, in us, this expectation for new. We always want new. We always want innovation. Innovation is great and amazing, but it can crowd out the old particularly for us as Christians, it can crowd out. There is a danger of it crowding out old wisdom, tradition, even truth. And so part of my goal for today is going to be to remind us that there is a deep joy to be had in some of the same old things. Now, we're going to talk a little bit about what are those same things. You know, why is it important that we grasp onto them and how can we, we recognize them? And so that's going to be what we look at today. So if you guys have your Bibles, let's uh, go ahead and open them up to the book of Philippians. Now, we're in a series in Philippians. Uh, oh, let's open them up to Philippians chapter 3. And uh, for those of you who haven't uh, maybe been here or you're just joining us, we've been in a series in Philippians. We've been looking at uh, what it means when Paul says, you know, to live as Christ, what that kind of life looks like, what are the things that that kind of life values and steps into. And, um, you know, we're going to be continuing in that series today. So if you guys have your Bibles, or it's, there, it's up there on your screen. I'm going to read uh, Philippians chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 1. We'll go all the way through verse 9, uh, but we'll take it one piece at a time. And so this is chapter 3, verse 1. And this is God's word. And it says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So here, Paul, he, uh, now he starts this section by saying, finally. Now, finally is maybe not the best translation because it's not exactly what he means. This isn't the last thing that he's going to say in this letter. And, you know, if you look later, he says, finally again, basically. So it's like not the last thing. Uh, it might better be translated something like, as far as the rest is concerned. So he's just talked about some things, right? And he's talked about, um, if you go back uh, to live as Christ to guy's gain, and then he's talked about how it's better for him to for Paul to remain with them, even though it's better in, in some ways to be with Christ. It's better for them if he remains. He's talked about what it means to have unity in the face of outside persecution, what it means to have unity within themselves. 
how to serve one another, to have this spirit of Christ to carry, the spirit of Christ to have this other-centered humility and servanthood. He gave the example of Jesus, and then he gave the example of, of Timothy and Epaphroditus. He's talked about complaining and how that undermines some of that, and now he's getting into this, and he's saying, he's kind of transitioning, right? He's saying, as far as this other stuff is concerned, some of this other stuff is concerned, my brothers. And then he says, rejoice in the Lord. Now, joy is a huge theme in the book of Philippians. And after that, he says, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. So he's saying, I'm going to tell you some of the same things I've already told you. I'm going to tell you some of the same things that I have repeatedly told you. But it doesn't bother me. Like, it's no trouble, you know, and it's safe for you. Now, he's saying that because he's about to talk about a way in which they can go astray, right? These dogs, these evildoers, these mutilators of the flesh. Now, he's saying this in reference to the the Judaizers. Um, And this isn't quite the theological takedown of the Judaizers that Galatians is, but he sees that this can be a potential problem. And if you're unfamiliar with the Judaizers, basically this was a group of people during the early church. It's kind of a a, a sect that um, many devout Jews who were willing to accept Jesus, but they wanted to hold on to, to some forms of Judaism as well. So one of the things that they said was, if any Gentile wants to become Christian, essentially, they have to also become Jewish. They have to convert to Judaism first. So it wasn't that they didn't believe in Jesus, but they believed Jesus and also you need the the law, the Jewish law. Now, Paul is is speaking against that. He's speaking against them, and he actually calls these people uh, dogs. He says, these guys are are dogs, evildoers, mutilators of the flesh. What does he mean by that? What does he mean by dogs? Right. Now let's look at a few passages that may help clarify what he means by dogs. This is going to be important for us because this is what he's warning us against. So Psalm 22, Psalm 22 says, uh, this is Psalm 22, 16 to 18. It says, for dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. You see that same terminology there. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So this is Jesus, actually. This is referring to Jesus. It is, you know, prophecy about Jesus. And he's saying, you know, the people who are around him on the cross, in fact, he calls them dogs. They're like evildoers. Let's look at a couple other passages. This is Matthew 7. Matthew 7, 6. Do not give to dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. What does that mean? He's referring to teaching. Don't waste your teaching on dogs. Right? They're not going to understand it. They're not going to want it. Don't throw your pearls to pigs. Right? Now, one more. This is 2 Peter 2. 2 Peter 2.22. It says, what the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit. And the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. So dogs are these evildoers. Dogs, in the presence of Jesus, 
don't recognize who Jesus is. Dogs, in the presence of good teaching, don't recognize the beauty of that teaching or the value of that teaching. Dogs, a dog returns to its own vomit. And the so after washing herself returns to wallow in the mire. And this is, in Peter, it's a reference to people who have essentially heard the gospel, who have heard the truth, and yet, and accept it in some way, seemingly, but then turn away from it. It's like a dog who returns to his own vomit. So then a dog in ancient times, so it's not how we think of dogs. We might think of them as like pets, you know, kind of adorable, like man's best friend, that kind of thing, right? But when uh, the term is used here by Paul in Jesus' usage and here in Paul's usage, it generally represents a scavenger who has no sense of what is valuable, right? Somebody who can't recognize the beauty of something. It's an analogy for someone who is unfit for what is holy. Now, contrastingly, he says, we are the circumcision. So there are these people. Now that, so it, what he means is kind of we're the true circumcision. Christians are the true circumcision. Why? Because there are these Judaizers who would say you have to be circumcised to be saved. And they're actually dogs who don't recognize the beauty of the truth. The power of the truth, these same things that I have said to you, they don't rejoice in it. They don't find joy in it. They don't find glory in it. And he says, contrastingly, we, and he says these three things, right? We worship by the Spirit of God, glory in Christ Jesus, and we put no confidence in the flesh. Now, it would seem that Paul is directly contrasting these dogs with those three characteristics. Because if you look down a little bit more in Philippians 3.18, so we're going to look at this one more passage here. It's Philippians 3.18. This is just a few verses later, right? It says, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. So this is kind of those dogs, those evildoers. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with mindset on earthly things. So you see how that contrasts to worship by the Spirit of God, glory in Christ Jesus, no confidence in the flesh. They, their God is their belly. In other words, they live for themselves and not for God. In contrast to worshiping God. Their glory is their shame, whereas the, the glory of the Christian is Christ. And their mindset is on earth, meaning they do have confidence in the flesh rather than putting no confidence in the flesh. So Paul is saying there is this danger when we lose the joy of the same things like these people when we don't see the glory, when we don't rejoice in it, to become like this dog, to become dehumanized to become unfit for what is holy. And Paul is saying, for the sake of your joy, I'm going to tell you and go deeper into the same things. It's not new things that you need. It's not novelty that you need. It's the same things, the same deep, powerful truths that we need to remember. Now, 
quickly here, before we move into those three things that are mentioned by Paul that characterize uh, the, the circumcision, the true circumcision, there are going to be people who tell you, and sometimes this is going to be yourself, that worship by the Spirit of God, that glory in Christ, that putting no confidence in the flesh, that that mentality is foolish, that it is antiquated, that it is boring, that you need something new, something different, something better. But that is exactly what Paul is guarding against. He says, it's no trouble for me, and it's safe for you. How is it safe for you? It's going to keep you from falling into what these dogs believe, the opposite of these things. So he gives these three things, right? The first, he says, worship God by the power of the Spirit. Now, I'm going to talk about this really quickly because, in fact, that word worship might better be translated serve God. Uh, It's not the word that's in in the Greek. It's not the typical word that's used for worship. Um, It's typically translated, you know, to serve or service. Um, And I'm not going to say too much here because this has been covered extensively in chapter 2. Really, that was like the whole point and idea, right? Giving the example of Jesus, having that humble servanthood mentality. I would encourage you kind of go back and look at those messages if you haven't uh, had a chance. But, but that is really what Paul, so he first says that, right? Serve by the power of the Spirit. That's one of the ways, that's one of the things, the truths that we need to hold on to and what we are meant to be uh, characterized by. Now, the second thing he says, which he's going to go into far more extensively, is uh, put, well, it's actually the third thing, but we're going to talk about it second because he, he goes into it, but it's to put no confidence in the flesh, right? So first he says, serve by the worship, uh, uh, you know, worship, worshipfully serve, kind of maybe we could think of it, but serve by the, the Spirit of God, the power of the Spirit. And then second, put no confidence in the flesh, Right? Put no confidence in the flesh. So let's read on here in verse 4. Because he just said those three things, right? And then he says in verse 4 about putting no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Okay, so let's keep the text up for a minute here. And he talks about essentially seven things here, if you look at it. Right? He says, circumcised on the eighth day, circumcised on the eighth day, that might refer to kind of a ritual uh, righteousness, we could say, right? Second thing he says is of the people of Israel, so in his ethnicity, that he is part of the chosen people. Third thing he says is of the tribe of Benjamin. If you remember, Benjamin is kind of one of the respected tribes because it was one of the tribes that remained, you know, faithful, uh, relatively faithful to, to Judah and the divided period, you know, it was, it was Judah and Benjamin. And so uh, the, the southern kingdom in the divided kingdom period. And so he's saying, I have this, this pedigree, family, history, tribe, 
right, that I am on the right side of, essentially. Uh, a Hebrew of Hebrews, tradition, as to tradition, to the law of Pharisee. Now, Pharisees would be incredibly strict and knowledgeable in the law. So it could be a strictness of rule-keeping, or I will say I'll call it discipline, in terms of discipline. Sixth thing he says is to zeal, a persecutor of the church. Now that's interesting. What he's saying is, I'm passionate. And my passion was proven in that I persecuted the church. So it wasn't that I just talked about it, but I was, I was like legit, basically. He's saying, I legitimately lived out my passion. I was a persecutor of the church. And then as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So that is essentially morality. So he says those seven things, right? Rituals, ethnicity, pedigree, tradition, discipline, you know, passion and authenticity, morality. He says, and in these ways, here's my resume. This is how, this is how good I am. If you want to say that you have a reason to put confidence in the flesh, like in the body and the earthly achievements. He's like, I got you covered. I got you beat. Here's my resume. Now, what, so what is this confidence that he's referring to, like talking about all these things? And I'll put it this way, confidence in the flesh, what is it? Putting confidence in the flesh is believing that salvation is possible by any human achievement. By any possible human achievement, whether that's where you come from, where you're born, who your family is, what you've achieved, your own discipline, your own accomplishments, whether those are moral or emotional or intellectual or religious. He's saying if you trust in any of those things for salvation... Without dependence on the Spirit. That's what this confidence in the flesh is. That's what these dogs are doing. That's what these evildoers are doing. Now, what might Paul's resume look like today? I mean, I don't know, because we don't use the same categories exactly to talk about what is, I don't know, uh, seen as good or respected. Now, let, let's just say... For example, he was, because some of the things even predate his birth, right? He's saying, basically, he's saying, like, my parents also were raised up, like, the right way, kind of raised me the right way. So maybe he was born in the best hospital. He was delivered by the best doctor, you know. Let's just say, even as a baby, I don't know, he was in the top one percentile in whatever, height, weight, intelligence. I don't, I don't know. They don't really measure that when you're a baby. But, you know, whatever, right? He's born to a self-made, wealthy, well-respected family. He is known for an incredible work ethic, right? He goes to uh, Ivy League school, Ivy League educated, influential in his profession and in his community, right? Whatever that is. Maybe he's got a lot of followers, right? Maybe every time he, he posts something, it gets tons of likes, you know, he serves his family and the church described as an honest, authentic, passionate person. He's living out his passion, right? Can you get more, you know, millennial or Gen Z? He's doing it, right? Paul says, I'm doing it. I don't just talk it. I do it. Attends church every Sunday. Gives 
never curses, you know, doesn't smoke, doesn't drink, doesn't, doesn't post or say or watch anything even moderately socially inappropriate. And Paul says, essentially, this was my life. This was the life that I had. Now let's look at the text again. He says, that's my life, right? Verse 7, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. All of that stuff, my entire resume. Verse 8, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. He says, Everything I lived for, see, because this is kind of what life is, right? It's like you're just putting things on your resume. Because in your mind, this isn't to apply for a job, right? This is your life resume. It's, it's not, you know, so you can get something. It's because you feel inside this need to prove something, to prove the purpose of your existence, that you matter. That there's a reason you're alive. Right? And everything that happens in your life, we don't realize it, right? But underneath, that's really often what's driving us, is particularly outside of Christ. That's what drives us. That's why you work hard in school. That's why, and of course, there are other motivations, but it's all part of this overarching list. You know, that you're keeping. That's why you want to get the grades. That's why you want to get into the school. And then, or, you know, if, and if that doesn't go right, but you're going to course correct, you got to get the job. You got to get the girl. You know, you got to get the kid. You got to achieve. Then you get the, the house or the car or whatever status symbol you think is the one that you need. And Paul says, that's how I lived my life. And in fact, I was successful at it. I did a pretty good job. I was respected. People knew me. And he says, now, that's all trash to me. He calls it rubbish. Right? And that couldn't be translated. Typically, it's like poo. It's like dung. Excrement. That's what it is to me. Now, that can't be, (laughs) when you think about that, is Paul just saying, like, a job compared to Jesus, you know, whatever, like a a thing that was to my credit, you know, my, my pedigree, my resume, compared to Jesus, is that bad? No, in fact, he's not saying only compared to Jesus it's that bad. He's saying outside of Jesus, it, it, it's that bad. Because it actually prevents us from getting to Jesus. He, he gives it up so that he can gain Christ. 
See, in fact, Paul trades his entire resume, this resume, what he worked his entire life for. He trades this for another one that he says in in 2 Corinthians 11. Once he meets Christ, here's his new resume in 2 Corinthians 11. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A day and a night I was adrift at sea. Frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. I'm going to read the rest, but just real quick right there. How many of you guys worry? Do you ever, do you have anxiety about things? Are you worried about your safety ever? This guy's worried, like he is legitimately in danger. He doesn't say necessarily that he was like overwhelmed with worry, but he is legitimately in danger in all of these situations. Uh, No, we're going to continue. Verse 27. Let's continue in verse 27. In toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. So his anxiety is not for himself and his life. His anxiety is actually for the churches. And then 29, who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. See, that's the difference, right? Before, he says, I thought that these things were good because I put confidence in the flesh. I thought if I ever am going to stand before God someday in judgment, and certainly Paul would have believed that he would, he would think, well, I'm I'm okay. You know why I'm okay? Because... You know, because I'm a Jew, because I'm from the tribe of Benjamin, because I was circumcised on the eighth day, because I was a Pharisee. You know, I kept the law. I was blameless. I was zealous. I did all the things. I did all the things that I was supposed to do. So if I ever stand before God, I think I'm going to be okay. And Paul says, that's deadly to think that way. To put that kind of confidence in the flesh. To think whether it is to have trust in yourself for salvation. Because you think I'm okay now because, you know, I'm kind of, I'm reading the word and I'm going to church and I'm doing this and I'm doing that. See, to have that kind of confidence in the flesh, in yourself, in the body, on earth. Confidence that we have done enough. Confidence that we are good enough. When our earthly achievements are our foundation for confidence, we operate primarily out of guilt and fear. Fear and guilt rule the one who puts confidence in the flesh. Have I done enough? Am I good enough? At home. You know, as a husband, as a mother, as a son, as a daughter, as a person, a citizen, a brother, a friend. You know, an employer, a worker, at my job, in my life. And that is a truly joyless experience. 
That is a truly incapacitating experience because constantly everything you do, there's this cloud over you. There's this dark cloud of, but is it enough? Did I do enough? Am I good enough? Some of you may be experiencing that. Service, ministry, family, pedigree, all these things. It's like you live in a, it's like you're on a space station and there's a leak somewhere. Like the oxygen is always being sucked out of your life. That's what it feels like to live with confidence in the flesh. Even when you're succeeding, even when things are going, you know, great, according to your plans, according to the goals, there's something that's just not. Like when you feel like you're doing it to prove you're cool or you're responsible or you're educated or you're woke or you're a good person, it's just not, it's not right. However, when our confidence is in Christ and not in the flesh, when we put no confidence, in the, not a little bit of confidence, not some confidence, no confidence in the flesh at all, The joy of forgiveness and the hope that is driven by confidence in God's inevitable success. That's what we feel. That's what we have, that God will succeed. Because of, in lieu of, despite you and me, is going to happen. And that is a powerful thing. See, Paul says, righteousness, it's a gift from Christ through faith. It's, I don't do anything. It's not about me. It's not about what I've done. It's not about my resume. It's not about who my parents are, how I was brought up, what I'm doing, what people think about me. It's about none of that stuff. His confidence is in Christ alone, and the work of Christ and the love of Christ does not change. Paul doesn't feel it necessary to change Who God is on the basis of how he feels from day to day. If you're tired of trying to achieve your salvation, whether that is theologically or just functionally, like every day, let me tell you something. That's not what God has for you. He doesn't want that for you. He never wanted that for you. He didn't want you to be driven by guilt and fear. He wanted you to be driven by joy and hope. Serve God by the Spirit. Put no confidence in the flesh. And here's the third thing. Glory in Christ Jesus. So one, once again, let's just look at verse 7. 7 to 9. Well, it, it, so look at verse 7 there. It says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Now look, he says, Gain, I had gain, I counted as loss. Verse 8, Indeed, I count everything as loss. So again, he He counted it as loss, and then he, present tense, counts it as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss, again, of all things and count them, again, as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. He says, I counted it as loss. So there's a moment when you meet Jesus 
and you counted it as loss, and then you continuously count it as loss. And then he says, I will count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. To become a Christian for Paul, right, is to experience this great reversal of what is gain and what is loss. If you're in Christ, everything outside of Christ that you once considered gain is loss. And the way that you put faith in Christ, because look what Paul says. He doesn't say, I try to see Jesus as glorious. Right? He doesn't say that. He says, I try to make Jesus look beautiful so that I can see that he is beautiful. He doesn't say that. The one thing he does is count what he used to consider gain as loss. He's saying that is a gift that comes by faith. So there's this, um, there's this uh, TV show. I've been talking about it a lot. But um, it's called The Chosen, right? So it, it came out actually a while back. It came out last uh, December. And I don't know if you guys have heard of this show, but uh, because of COVID, you know, and everything that's happening with that, I hadn't heard about this until about a April, I think, around like March or April. I didn't start watching it until like a few months ago. And, uh, you know, it, what it is, is it's a completely crowdfunded show. I think they raised like $10 million, like the most ever for, for this kind of project. But it's a show about the ministry of Jesus and his followers. Now, before I even talk about this, I'm going to say this right now. You guys have to watch this show. Everybody has to watch this show. Like, you have to watch it. Okay, now, it is not, I will say, it is not perfectly accurate. You know, uh, it, it, they're trying to stay faithful to the Bible as much as possible. But obviously, there are things that we don't know from the Bible. They kind of fudge the timeline a little bit um, just for the sake of kind of artistic and, and creative license. But generally, pretty faithful to Scripture. And it's amazing to see the lives of people interacting with Jesus because I'm just, I'm just talking about this show. because I, I want you guys all to, you got to watch it. It's free. <laughs> you can find it online. You can download this app, okay? Um, but there's a, there's, a, there's a part in this show where, uh, you know, Nicodemus, he's one of the main characters in, in this. And um, he goes to investigate a woman who's, being, uh, who's been healed. Of, of demon possession. And so, and prior to her life being healed, her life is a mess, right? She has experienced trauma, abuse, loss. You know, she's basically uh, doesn't want to live anymore. I mean, there is, it's just you see how broken she is. And Jesus comes into her life and heals her. Uh, and this is surprising to, to Nicodemus because, you know, so essentially he goes to investigate what's happened and he sees her. And he saw her before when she was demon possessed and then he sees her after she's healed. And she's obviously, she's a completely different person. You know, she is one way, she's broken, she's a wreck, she's a mess. She is constantly just burdened. Because she is demon-possessed. But in that, there is so much more happening there that she is carrying all of the weight of her, 
you know, of her sin and sin that has been done to her. And then he sees her, and he's, like, shocked. He's like, what the, like, this is crazy. How did this happen? And at this point, the woman who's healed doesn't know Jesus' name even. And all she says is this in reference to him, what happened. She says, I was one way, and now I am completely different. And the thing that happened in between was him. Like, so when she talks about her life, what happened? Because Nicodemus, a Pharisee, comes and is like, what happened? I see that you're, like, something's completely, you're, you're changed. And she says, this is the way she explains it. She says, I was one way, and now I'm completely different. And what happened in between was him, was Jesus. See, following Jesus is about experiencing this great reversal. The only thing Paul says, I count it as loss. Everything I thought life was about. I have come to discover it's not. Church, when you're found in Christ, because that's what he says, he says, I was found in Christ. I didn't find Christ. I found myself in Christ. I was found. I was discovered. Because outside of Christ, I was lost. And in Christ, I am found. I am whole. I am new. I am different. And that is worth so much more than everything I thought made me me. Than everything I thought made me valuable, that made me worthy, that made me good enough. That made me think I had done enough. When Jesus came and said, I'm enough for you. I have done everything. You are worthy because of me. When you are found in Christ, your eyes are open to see the value of Jesus, and you understand that there is deep, powerful joy and purpose in knowing him. J.I. Packer put it this way, once you become aware that the main business that you are here for is to know God, most of life's problems fall into place of their own accord. Isn't that true? One commentator uh, phrased it this way, every church must be a same things church. Yes, of course, we should adjust to the times. We should uh, be flexible with our methodologies and our, perhaps, you know, some of our practices. But at our core, we must be about the same things that the church has always been about. Serving God by the Spirit. Putting no confidence in the flesh. Finding glory in Christ and the gospel 
joy, deep, powerful joy, does not come by virtue of constant, earth-shattering epiphanies. It comes by way of consistent, regular application of timeless truth. There are many false gospels, but there is only one good news. The same good news that has been preached to us and needs to be preached to us anew every day. The news that you have been created in the image of the creator, that he knows you intimately, past, present, and future, that he knows things about you that no one else knows. Every thought you've ever had for good or for evil, every secret act of service or sin, every hurt you've endured and that you have committed. And knowing all that, he went to the cross to bear the cost of your transgressions fully so that you could fully and freely know and enjoy him. You are that loved and valued by him, and he has so much in store for you. More than you can imagine right now, more than you could ever design for yourself if we would simply trust him in faith, confess our need, turn away from confidence in the flesh and put confidence fully in him. Would you with me, church, step into the powerful joy of commitment to those timeless truths, those gospel words, those same things? Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you so much. Thank you that we need not put our confidence in the flesh. God, that we need not trust in ourselves, that we need not trust in what we have done. We need not live constantly questioning whether we have done enough, whether we are good enough. Because we can have full confidence in you, Jesus. Would you so deep in our hearts uh, joy in those same things, God? Joy as we serve you and others by the Spirit of God. Joy as we deny ourselves deny confidence in the flesh, as we deny that there is anything of value when we accomplish things to our name apart from you, God. And would you open up our hearts to see your glory, to experience that great reversal, that everything that we thought was gain is loss. And Jesus, you are the ultimate gain that is completely sufficient. We need nothing else. We thank you so much uh, for these truths, God. We entrust our growth and deepening in them to you and to the Spirit. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.